Thanks, Seth. And thanks, everyone, for joining your voices together with us this morning, for singing to the Lord. You know, I was impressed as I'm sitting here. Um, there is nothing that I experience through the week that is quite like being surrounded by a chorus of people singing truth together. Like, there's a great encouragement that comes from that, uh, and it's something that is a blessing to me, and I hope it was to you this morning as well. Go ahead and turn with me in the Bible, if you would, to the book of Daniel. We're continuing our study this morning through Daniel uh, called Strangers in a Strange Land. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's going to be my privilege to lead us in our study this morning as we go through Daniel chapter 4. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we're, we're in part two of a three-week mini-series, if you will, in the middle of Daniel. Uh, as we're in a bit of an odd chapter in the book. Uh, here in Daniel 4, the pen gets passed from Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who writes this testimony, this experience that he has in coming to faith in the living God. Uh, it's an it's a unexpected turn, as Nebuchadnezzar has really been the villain of the book so far. He's been the antagonist who has been countering what God is doing, what Daniel and his friends are doing. He's been the oppressor, uh, and now he... In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4, sings this hymn of praise to God, which prompted us last week to, to wonder, what happened? How could this man be so transformed? And we heard last week his introduction, his conclusion that he came to, and now beginning this week and then continuing on next week, we're going to see how did this come about? What is his testimony of God's saving grace in his life? Uh, if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, uh, you can slip your hand up and Alex will make sure you get one from the back. It's got our text in it. It has some place for you to take notes. Uh, and so that will help you as we go through our study this morning of Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 27. So again, we're going to be looking this week at the story of how God redeems Nebuchadnezzar, how this guy who was oppressing God's people, who was threatening them with death and dismemberment, who was a short fuse, who was, who was a guy who was always ready to fall off the deep end, self-obsessed, how does that guy become a guy who sings praise to the God of heaven? And this week, we're going to see that if God is going to save Nebuchadnezzar, for him to make a transformation like that, Grace is required. Nebuchadnezzar has got a lot of history that needs to be erased if God is going to bring him into the fold. It made me think of the movie The Avengers and the character of Black Widow who says multiple times through that movie that she's got a lot of red on her ledger and she'd like to wipe it out. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of red on his ledger and there's nothing he can do to wipe it out. No amount of good deeds, no amount of nice words said about God can exterminate the past of selfishness, of oppression, of murder, all these things that he's got on his book. And so if God is going to save him, grace has to be a key component. And we don't often think about stories in the Old Testament as being stories of grace, right? Of salvation. We think, well, the Old Testament, that's where there were rules and rituals and laws and all these things, and you better get all of them right or else. That was the kind of God we see in the Old Testament, right? Well, maybe that's what our culture's conception of the Old Testament is, but it's not the reality. As we look this morning, we're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story begins to unfold, and we're going to see a pattern that actually looks a lot like the way that God redeems and saves lost pagans today. Even the nice, upstanding, respectable pagans like some of you might have been, like some of us might have been. Grace is at the core of what God does in the Old Testament and what he does in the New Testament. So as we look at this this morning and we look at a tale of dreams and interpretations, once again, this can seem a bit out there, a bit otherworldly, a bit hard to connect to in our world today. 
But I hope you'll look deeper than that. And I hope you'll see the exact same pattern that either led you to faith in Jesus or that is calling you to faith in him this morning. So join me in reading Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 27, and we'll continue in our study today. Nebuchadnezzar writes to us in, chapter, in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the vision of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant in which food was found for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. 
It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. That's God's word for us this morning. Pray with me and we'll, we'll continue in our study of it. O great God of heaven, most high God, who rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he pleases, we ask this morning that what we know not, you teach us. What we have not, you give us. What we are not, you make us. By the power of your spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace in Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. All right, so let's look at verse 4 and begin to walk through this together. So remember last week, first three verses, Nebuchadnezzar led with his conclusion. He led with this realization he'd had that God was God in heaven, and he was not. He was subservient to the Most High God, whose kingdom is forever, whose dominion reaches to the ends of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar realized, I am small and finite, and God is great and glorious. And now in verse 4, this is the beginning of his testimony, of his story of how he came to realize that. How he came to get to this conclusion. And so here we find him in verse 4. And where do we find him as the story picks up? Well, he's he's doing quite well. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He was at ease in his house. He's prospering in his palace. This is a shorthand way of saying his empire was expanding. His land's culture was flourishing. His wealth was growing. His influence was over the ends of the earth. Life was good for Nebuchadnezzar as he opens this tale. And in fact, as we read this, this is the dream, right? This is what we strive for, what we work for, what we pray for, what we hope for, to be able to lead a life like this, where we're at ease in our house, where our work, our influence is prospering. This is the kind of situation that we view as the goal in life. This is where we want to be. But yet for Nebuchadnezzar, this was actually a dangerous place for him to be. He was at the top of everything. He had everything he could want. He was full of ease and comfort and prosperity. He had everything except for one thing, except for peace with the creator of the universe, except for relationship with with the Most High God. And nothing in his life of ease and prosperity and comfort was going to drive him to pursue that God. There was no stone in his shoe to cause him to want to change things up, to find a God, to find a creator, to pursue him. He was at ease, he was comfortable, he had everything he could ever desire, and yet he was in a dangerous place. And it's here that we see the first reality of grace. We're going to look this morning at four different things that we see about God's grace in Nebuchadnezzar's life and things that we see about it in the lives of you and I and others today. And the first reality is this, grace afflicts the comfortable. When God gives us 
good and gracious things that we do not deserve, one of the first things that he usually has to do is bring affliction into our comfortable lives. How did you come to know Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning and you're sitting here, I want you to think back and ask yourself, how did you come to faith in Christ? If we were to take a straw poll, go around the room, I'm sure we'd hear lots of different stories, all of us from different backgrounds, different things that spurred us on, that, that brought Jesus into our lives. We'd have a lot of different tales. But I would wager this. I would wager that very few of us would say, you know, I was in a place where I was so comfortable and so prosperous and had such a good and cushy life going on that it just made me want to find God and, and get to know him. That my ease and my comfort and my prosperity drove me to know and seek out the Lord Jesus. I would guess that's probably not the story for many of us. Usually, it's things that come into our life that rock our boat, that tip us on edge, that, that unsettle us. Those are the things that draw us to God, that drive us to God. And this is borne out in the history of the people of Israel, right? As they are coming out of the land of slavery in Egypt, they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. They're getting ready to come into the land of promise, a land of prosperity, of ease, of comfort, of blessing that the Lord had promised to them. God gave them a warning through Moses. And he said that in this prosperity they were about to enter into, there was blessing, yes, but there was also a great danger. Listen to what he said to them in the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Moses says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the warning was, when you get comfortable, when you prosper, when you're at ease, don't forget the God who brought you here, who gave you all this, and forget they did. In fact, their forgetfulness, borne out over time and time, century after century, is the whole reason that Daniel is serving in a Babylonian palace now and not one in Jerusalem. God finally brought judgment on them. He, he admonished them. He performed all the warnings that he had warned them about, and he took away kingship and sent them as captives into this foreign land of Babylon. God brought this about as a result of the people's forgetfulness in the midst of their ease and of their comfort. And so when grace comes into our lives, very often the first thing it does is it afflicts the comfortable. It drives us out of ease and comfort and reminds us that we need God. We didn't get all this ourselves. 
Even if you think that you are where you're at in life because you're smart, because you're clever, because you're talented, because you're nice, because people like you, even if all of that is true from a superficial level, who made you and gave you all of those things? The New Testament says, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it from somewhere else, why do you boast like you didn't receive it? We are to remember the Lord and ease and prosperity fight against that. Now remember, God gave them the promised land as a blessing. It was a good gift that he gave. The problem is not in the prosperity itself, but it's in the dangers that accompany it, a danger of ease, of comfort, and of ultimate forgetfulness. And so when God disturbs our comfort, it's usually to draw us to him. It's usually to do something significant in our lives, and that's the case for Nebuchadnezzar here. So the question, the first question to chew on for us this morning is, when God disturbs your comfort, do you view it as an inconvenience to complain about or an opportunity to grow? All right, we said the dream for us is usually what Nebuchadnezzar had. We want ease. We want comfort. We want prosperity. And when God brings discomfort into our lives, our first instinct is usually to complain to be upset, to think, why are you doing this, God? But if we believe this about God, if we believe he's sovereign, like we talked about in the catechism, we believe he's gracious, and we believe he uses affliction oftentimes to grow us, shouldn't we approach this with a different mindset? Uh, Biblical scholar and commentator Ian Dugwood put it this way in, in reflecting on this passage. He says, it suggests that we should approach these troubled times of our lives with a far more positive outlook than we normally do. These shattering experiences should prompt within us the expectation and hope that God is going to do something important in our lives. It is precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are, and even more importantly, who he really is. That's what he's doing for Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's about to show him who he really is. Who is this God of heaven? And it's a lesson he can only learn through this affliction. Romans 8.28 gives us another promise about this same reality. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Included in all things is discomfort, is affliction, is trial, is hardship. And so when those things come into my life, can I react the way that Dugwood says that we should here is to think, God's about to do something important. There's going to be a lesson for me in this. God, help me to know it. Help me to understand it. Don't let me waste this trial by being focused on me and my ease and comfort rather than you and what you are trying to teach me. Don't run from prosperity. Don't become suspicious of those who are doing well as if the prosperity in itself is bad. We see that it's not through God graciously giving it. But know that dangers lie within. There is a snare hidden in that comfortable and blessed life. And we need to avoid it by remembering the Lord and not forgetting him. But grace comes at us. It afflicts the comfortable. It's one of the first things that it does. And it afflicts Nebuchadnezzar when, in verse 5, he sees a dream that makes him afraid. Right? As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. He's at ease. He's at comfort. And then suddenly he has this dream. And it shatters his ease. It disturbs his comfort. Now he can't sleep. Now, just like we saw in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 2 in that dream and interpretation episode, he has this thing haunting him in the back of his mind. And all the gold, all the silver, all the influence can't help him get a good night's rest because he knows something is on the horizon and he can't make out what it is. 
Now he's afflicted. Now he's alarmed. Now he is, is struggling with fears and anxieties, and he doesn't know what comes next. And God brings that about now in his life for a purpose, in order to show him his need of the Most High God. So verse 6, we begin to see what he does in response to this discomfort, into this disturbance that enters his life. He says, I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me and they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This is chapter two all over again, right? Bring in everybody. Bring in all the wise men, the astrologers, the Chaldeans. See if they can make known to me the interpretation of this dream. I got to know what to do. I got to know what this means. I got to be able to sleep at night. And they all come in. And just like in chapter two, none of them can interpret it. He even gives them the dream this time. There's no, you know, you got to come up with the dream and the interpretation like we saw back in chapter 2. He even gives it to them now, plainly, and they still can't tell him what it means. Who knows why? Maybe they couldn't piece together. Maybe they had an idea, but they were a little bit afraid to give it to him because we can see this dream seems foreboding, right? It doesn't end in a good place. It starts out with this good image of this tree, but by the end, stuff's getting chopped down, beasts are getting scattered, Scary stuff's happening. Maybe these wise men said, I don't think we want to give him the news about this dream. But for what other reason, whatever reason, they can't tell him what's going on. And it's easy to see why he has to know, right? As we go and we hear about the dream, we hear about the interpretation. He sees this great tree. It's beautiful. All the creatures of the earth are either nesting in its branches or being fed or gathering in its shade. Like everything's fantastic. And then the voice comes from heaven and an angel calls out, chop it down. And the tree is chopped down and all of its good is scattered everywhere. All of the beasts go fleeing from it. And what is left is just a stump in the ground. And in verse 15, it becomes apparent that this tree is meant to represent a man, right? The language goes from talking about an object to talking about a person. Verse 15, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then finally, the angel proclaims the purpose for all of this in verse 17. To the end of the, this is the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will and he sets over it the lowliest of men. What's the reason for the dream? What's the reason for all this that's going to come about? That everyone would know that kingship belongs to God and God gives it to whoever he wants to. That's the goal. That's the purpose of this entire dream, of this entire episode, is to teach the world something about the power and influence of God. So Nebuchadnezzar needs an interpretation of this. And it's easy to understand why. Like we said, this this dream, even if you don't know anything further, if we didn't read the interpretation, if you had this dream at night, it would unsettle you because it it seems negative. It seems like things go from good to bad. And so Nebuchadnezzar is is troubled. He's disturbed by this. He knows it's some sort of warning, but he can't piece out what it might be. And it's here that we see the second reality of grace. And that's that grace warns of coming judgment. Grace warns us of coming judgment. We see in this dream a divine warning about what is to come. And we're about to see that judgment is coming upon Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar is about to be judged for his pride that he has set himself up as equal to the gods. Remember back in chapter 3 in the fiery furnace episode, he threatens the three friends with, what God is able to deliver you from my hand? God, the God in heaven says, ooh, 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 I'll show you. Judgment is coming upon him. And God could have simply brought judgment. He could have simply smacked Nebuchadnezzar upside the head right then and there. But instead, he chooses to give warning. In fact, as we're going to see as we get into next week, he chooses to give a warning about a year ahead of time, a full year for Nebuchadnezzar to think about and chew on this fact before promised judgment comes. God brings judgment into our lives, and and when he does that, when he warns us about that, the warning is a grace. If judgment is coming, and the whole of the Bible gives testimony to the fact that it is, that one day God is going to set all things right, He calls Nebuchadnezzar's account right here in this chapter. One day he will call the account of every one of us when we stand before him, either at our death or at Christ's return. And so if judgment is coming, then prior warning is a good and gracious thing. It's a grace to us. Consider this weekend that we just had. We just had some nasty storms roll through throughout the day on Friday. And maybe, depending on how you got your phone set up or if you had your TV on, you might have heard warnings. You might have heard a severe thunderstorm warning. You might have heard a tornado warning. You might have heard someone on the news saying, you need to take shelter now because bad things are coming. Now, when we hear those warnings, we don't get mad at the weather guy. We don't say, who do you think you are telling me that bad stuff is coming? Why you got to be so judgmental, weatherman? No, we say, I think I should act on this. I need to go to my basement. I need to get my car into the garage so the hailstones don't pound $5,000 worth of damage into my hood. I need to take cover. This warning is a grace. It is a good thing for me to heed. The Bible consistently tells us that the chief reason God warns us of coming judgment is so that we can prepare for and avoid it. It's a grace. It's a loving expression of God's peace and his patience and his, and his forbearing and letting us know if you continue down the current road, judgment comes. Don't take that road. Go this way. Seek life. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, the Lord says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The Lord expresses a heart that that pleads with people. Listen to my warning. Turn away from your sins and live. One of the first graces that we get once our ease and our comfort is upset is this warning of judgment. It is coming. There is a God with whom we are at war, and we need to make peace with him, and he invites us to do that now. Not not to wait until it's too late, until the promised judgment arrives. Even Jesus himself said in Luke 12, he tells a story about how we should deal with God, how we should uh, respond when warning comes our way. And he says this, he says, Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus says, you're smart people, think for yourself. If someone brings a lawsuit against you and you know you're going to lose it, then settle on the way to court. 
Don't go, don't go to court, but find a way to settle with your accuser on the way. Because if you go to court, he's going he's gonna to bring his case and the judge is going to take you for everything that you're worth. So settle now. Make peace now. It's easy to see the picture that he's painting for. He's not really concerned with, with lawsuits and going to court. He's saying, you are on your way to a date with the ultimate judge. And the invitation is for you to settle with him now. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness. He offers you peace. This is a warning. Don't wait until it's too late. And you are stuck with every last penny of your eternal debt. When God, through his word and through his people, brings warning into your life. And this can happen in a lot of different ways. This can come from opening the word and reading something that cuts you to your heart. That brings conviction over sin. This can happen through watching maybe a friend or a loved one who, who makes a mess, who makes a shipwreck of their life, and you see, man, if I don't change this piece of my life, I'm going to go down that same road. I'm going to end in that same way. God can use that as a warning as well. But when God brings warning into your life, ask yourself, do you view it as a message of grace or do you foolishly rail against the messenger? God might warn you, against eternal judgment that is coming. You might need to know that there is grace and forgiveness through Jesus and repentance and faith. Maybe you've trusted in Christ and God still might bring warning into your life about sin that you're getting way too comfortable with. And he wants you to realize that if you continue to let that go unchecked, it's going to bring discomfort in your life. If you ultimately let it go unchecked, it could make shipwreck of your faith. God brings warnings to us through his word, Through his people, he brings rebuke. And when those things come, they are a grace to us because grace warns us of coming judgment so that we might not experience it in its fullness. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a sense of the foreboding nature of his dream. But that's not enough for him, right? He has the dream. He knows this isn't good. Bad stuff's going to happen. But what does he need? He needs an interpretation. He needs someone to give him a clear message about what it is and what he should do about it. And this is the role that Daniel is going to play. Our third reality about grace, it requires divine revelation. For us to experience saving grace, we need not just the warning, we need divine revelation. We need God to speak into our lives and give us a clear message, a clear direction about what it really is wrong and what we're supposed to do about it. Daniel's going to play that part here. Once again, just like he did in chapter 2. And Daniel's going to have to bring bad news into the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to have to tell him a message that he doesn't want to hear. And right here, I think it's good for us to kind of pause, to take a little side trail, and look at how Daniel does this, because this is important for us who are Christians and who might be expected to do this same thing for someone else. Note Daniel's initial reaction. If we get down into verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel's reaction is he is dismayed and he is alarmed. He knows the news he has to give is not good news. It's a message of judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why is he dismayed? Why is he alarmed? Well, people offer different opinions, different explanations for that. Some would suggest that he's like the other magicians. He's afraid for his own life. He knows, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to tell this hot-headed king something he doesn't want to hear and it could end up coming back on me. He's not going to be happy. I could get thrown into a fiery furnace this time. But I would ask you the question, does that sound like the Daniel we've seen so far for the first three chapters? Does this seem like a guy who is easily rattled, who is easily fearful in the face of things like this? 
the guy who told the king, hey, we're, we're not going to go and do this diet. We'd like to, to do things differently and honor the Lord. The guy who, when death and judgment was being thrown around in chapter 2, when the wise men couldn't interpret the dream, he's like, oh yeah, we'll take care of that. Give us a day, king. We'll come back. We'll let you know. The guy whose friends in chapter 3, when uh, they're told to bow down to the great statue and worship Nebuchadnezzar and his empire, they say, yeah, no, we'll, we'll take the furnace. Does this sound like the kind of guy who is alarmed and dismayed because he's got to give bad news to Nebuchadnezzar? I don't think that makes any sense at all. I would suggest to you this. I would say that this is not fear. This is, com- excuse me, this is compassion that we see in Daniel. He's alarmed. He's dismayed because he knows he has to give bad news and he doesn't want to give it to this guy. Now think about this. Think about who Nebuchadnezzar is. This is the guy who took Daniel's people captive, who conquered his homeland, who pulled him away from his family as a teenager and brought him to a foreign land, thrust him into this world that he knew nothing about. Nebuchadnezzar is not a nice guy. We've seen what happens when his temper goes off. We've seen the wrath that he can throw around. And yet Daniel is loath to give him bad news. Daniel has compassion on this man, on this king. Daniel is, is somebody who has love, who has compassion, not just for his friends, but even for his enemies, even for those who are far from God. And there's a lesson for us here. We're called to bring sometimes a message of bad news, a warning of coming judgment to the friends, to the family, to the loved ones around us. And a lot of times they don't hear us very well. And I would suggest to you this morning that maybe people wouldn't be so quick to write off our warnings of judgment if we didn't seem like we were so excited to bring them. Do we have the kind of compassion that Daniel has here for lost people? Or when we go and we bring messages of God's judgment, are we sitting as armchair quarterbacks? All right, people, you better get right. You better repent. You better get your act together. Or when you go before a loved one, before a coworker, a friend, and you need to tell them hard truths from God's word, are you alarmed and dismayed inside you? Do you have concern and compassion for their soul? Do you wish that you could give any news except for the news that you have to give? Do we have compassion? Do you have compassion on others who are far from God? And if you do, can they tell? Do they realize that you have compassion or are you getting that lost in translation in the way that you deliver your message? Is pride getting in the way? Is self-righteousness getting in the way? And Nebuchadnezzar can sense this. You you notice that in the text? That Daniel is alarmed and dismayed in verse 19. And in verse, uh, at the end of verse 19, the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. It's basically saying, it's okay, Daniel, Just, just spit it out. Just spit it out. Get it out there. And so Daniel takes a deep breath, and what does he say? He says, my Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you, and it's interpretation for your enemies. I wish this could be about somebody else, not about you. Daniel is full of compassion. He doesn't want this message to be true. He doesn't want to have to deliver it. But it's equally important with his compassion to notice what he does next. He delivers the message. He boldly gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. He does not soft-pedal it. He gives him the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He tells him that the tree is him. This great tree that you saw in your vision, O king, it's you. 
You are the one who spreads your branches over the whole earth. You are the one who all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, everyone takes shelter under your wings. Your empire, king, has sheltered many. It has brought about the prosperity of nations. You are great. You're full of influence. But the decree has come from heaven that you shall be cut down, that your empire will be taken from you. You, will, you are going to be cut down, cast out. The interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar is he's going to go mad. His mind is going to be taken from him, and he will live like a beast of the field. He will live among the beasts. His mind will be like that of an animal. And this will go on for seven periods of time, the text says. Now, in biblical teaching, and in, in biblical uh, language, seven is a number of completion. It represents fullness and totality. And so when it's, he's told that this is going to happen for seven periods of time. The sense here is that this will be full and total in its judgment. And in what sense will it be, to- will, will it be total? When will that totality of this, of this judgment be complete? When the objective of the judgment is met. And what's the objective? That Nebuchadnezzar would understand that heaven rules and not him. Right? That's what we're told down in verses 25 and 26. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. You're going to be chopped down. You're going to be cast out with the beasts, with the animals. But your kingdom is going to be kept for you by the Most High God for the time when you understand that he is God and that you are not. This, this judgment will be full and total until God is done with you until he teaches you what he's been trying to get through your thick head, Nebuchadnezzar, for the first three chapters of this book. Daniel doesn't shrink back. He wishes the bad news was not falling on Nebuchadnezzar, but because God said it is, he knew that he did the man no service by failing to tell him the truth. Nebuchadnezzar had a foreboding dream, right? He had this sense of something is, is, is bad, something is coming. But he needed from Daniel this clear message. The dream was no good to him without the interpretation. And people today are not so different. And you might think, well, how? I, I've never had a coworker come up to me and said, I had this dream last night and it's really messing with me. Do you think you could help me figure it out? Maybe you have had that experience. I haven't. Nobody's ever asked me to interpret their dreams. But I would suggest to you that people are not so different today. People in this world have an understanding that something is off, that something is broken with the world. And in fact, something is broken with them. People have God-given consciences, and they're not clean. We understand our own hearts bear witness against us that we have not done the things that, we're going, that we need to do. We have read on our ledger. People bear guilt. They walk around with shame. Some of it misplaced, but some of it is very well-placed and given by God, and they don't know how to deal with it. And they have this sense that something is off. Romans tells us that we have this sense that there is a God to whom we're accountable. Even if we suppress that away and we try to get rid of it, we cannot escape this sense that I need to make things right with someone, with something that has made this world. Uh, Poet and hip-hop artist Propaganda in one of his songs, put it this way. He said, We may scratch ourselves raw to erase the image we were made in. Smoke, snort, sex, or drown out the silence. 
We may waste our life savings on makeovers to try to rhinoplast our daddy's nose away, but no nip, no tuck can cut away the sense of obligation. We realize that God has made us in this way and we're not right and we need to get right. And God reveals a lot to us just through this world that he's made. Through our conscience, through the knowledge that that he has made, he's shown his power and his glory through creation. Theologians call this idea general revelation. That God communicates some truths to all people in a very general way. In In the way he's created the world to display his power through mountains and oceans. In the way that he's given us a conscience that people know that there is right, know that there is wrong, and have a sense that we need to choose right, but we we still choose wrong. This is called general revelation. It's a way that God gives us an understanding of who he is and the reality of the world just by looking around us and within us. And this general revelation is something that is sufficient to bring condemnation on us. Right? We realize that we have red on our ledger. We realize that we have a conscience that betrays us. We realize that we live in a world where, where things are not right. But this general revelation can't save us. Just like with Nebuchadnezzar, he has the dream, but he doesn't know what to do about the dream. There are people all around you who have guilty consciences and they have no idea what to do about it. They're going to spend their life trying to do charitable things, to try to advocate for causes, to try to do good to those who are in need, all to, to try to wipe it away, to scrub it out. But like Lady Macbeth, there's, there's still blood on the hands. There's still nothing that they can do to, to truly cleanse the conscience. And they need clarity. They need what the theologians call special revelation. They need God, like Daniel does here, to speak clearly and say, here's the problem and here's the solution. Daniel gets to play that role for Nebuchadnezzar. You might get to play that role as a Christian for someone that you know, for someone that you love. God has spoken into the world that he's made through prophets, through scriptures, and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have borne witness to Him, to grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Christ is the fullness of God's revelation. And the Scriptures bear witness to Him, and we bear witness to the Scriptures. You are the one who can speak into the life of a friend and say, that that guilt that you feel just chained down with and you can't get rid of, I can show you a way. I can tell you a way to find freedom, to walk in new life. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. You can be the interpreter for their bad dream. You can be the Daniel that speaks into your life. You've been placed into this world, surrounded by people with a sense of brokenness and foreboding, but no ability to make it right. And you've been called to take a message of salvation. But that message... In necessity, it requires warning. And so you need to be like Daniel, who was compassionate and yet bold. You're going to have to be compassionate in your message. You're also going to have to be bold. You're going to have to say it. Which of those two is more difficult for you this morning? If you're a Christian, if you're trying to faithfully communicate God's truth to others, it's likely that one of those two is going to trip you up. Maybe compassion is hard. Maybe you see people and you think, you just need to get it together, folks. You need to listen to what God says. It's right there. Shut up and do better. Compassion doesn't come naturally to you, but it needs to. If you want people to hear your message, 
You need to be like Daniel. You need to be alarmed and dismayed when you see people around you who are no different than you, by the way. You deserve God's judgment just as much. Where's the compassion of Christ who looked out over Jerusalem, the Jerusalem who was about to murder him, and said, oh, how I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wish you'd come to me. Where's that compassion in your life? Ask Christ, and he will give it to you. He will give you grace. He will grow you day by day to have more of it. Maybe you're compassionate all day long. Maybe your heart bleeds for the people around you. But when the time comes to deliver the message, I don't know if I can say that. What if they don't want to hear it? What if they get mad at me? What if they don't like me? What if this relationship can never be the same again because of what I'm about to say? You need to have the boldness that Daniel had to give the warning, to speak the truth, to not hide from them the reality of what is coming upon us apart from Christ and what can be coming to us in Christ. Compassion and boldness are needed. And grace requires divine revelation. It requires us to understand from God who he is and what he's doing. And then finally in verse 27, we see the last reality about grace. And that is that it calls for repentance. So how does Daniel end his words to Nebuchadnezzar? I've interpreted the dream. I've told him everything he needs to know. Have a nice day, king. See you later. No. What does he say? Verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's humble encouragement is to repent. Break off your wickedness. Act righteously towards those who are oppressed rather than milking them for all their worth. And maybe if you do, he holds out hope that that God might relent, that he might allow his prosperity to continue. He might not bring the judgment that he has warned him of. And this is certainly in line with the character of God, right? We see this pattern all throughout Scripture, that God warns about coming judgment, and when people repent, God backs off, and he, he shows grace, he shows mercy, he shows compassion. We see it in the life of, of kings of Israel, like King Josiah, who shows repentance, and God holds back from the deliverance that he had promised would be in Josiah's lifetime. God even does it with wicked kings like Ahab. If you want a, the worst king in the history of Israel, Ahab would be on the top ten list. This guy was a wicked guy. He married a wicked wife and did wicked things. But God at one point shows compassion to him when he shows repentance and sorrow over the things that he has done. And then God even does this for pagans, for the pagan nation of Assyria, their capital of Nineveh. Jonah is told to go and preach a warning to them. And Jonah doesn't want to go, and we know how that story kind of goes with the fish and the throwing up on the beach. And then he goes and he says, you need to repent, Nineveh, because God's judgment is coming. And then what happens? Nineveh repents. And God doesn't bring judgment because he shows grace and compassion from this city of pagans. And Jonah doesn't know what to do with it. God, you're supposed to smite him now. Where's the fire? Where's the brimstone? But God shows compassion. This is the way he loves to operate. And so Daniel holds out this hope to Nebuchadnezzar. If you repent, king, then maybe there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. The call to faith whether it's the call to initial saving faith for a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar 
or the call for sanctifying faith to those of us who are following Christ and walking forward day by day. That call requires a response. It requires repentance and a trust in the kindness of the God who has brought the word of warning. So what's repentance? It asks that question of us. What is this repent that Nebuchadnezzar is called to do? It's an abandoning of sin and a striving after righteousness. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Stop doing the things you're currently doing and start doing the opposite. Start practicing the things God wants you to do. It's important to note that repentance is not just feeling bad. Daniel doesn't tell Nebuchadnezzar, you should be really sorry for what you did. He tells him, no, you should repent. You should break it off. You should change. Have you done this? Have you repented in that way? Maybe the best way to answer that question isn't to ask, have you done this? To ask, are you doing this? Is this a current pattern in your life? The great reformer Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses that that sparked the Protestant Reformation, he said this, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repenting isn't just something that you do to get you in the gate. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of growth. It's part of dying to self, of breaking off sin, of pursuing Christ. It never stops. The best way to tell if you ever repented in a saving way is to ask if you're repenting now. If you're continuing to practice repentance for sin, pursuing Jesus. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? When we ask the question, are we in Christ, the Bible never asks that in a past tense. It's always in a present examination. What's the evidence that you repented of your sin 20 years ago that you're continuing to repent today? When God reveals things in your life that need to change, that's the process of sanctification, of growing in godliness, of the Spirit taking us and making us more look, look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And I'll look more like Jesus tomorrow by God's grace than I do today. And that happens through repentance. But this is what this whole episode has been building toward, an invitation to Nebuchadnezzar to break off his rebellion against God and turn to him in repentance and faith instead. Break away from your iniquity. Do righteousness to the oppressed instead of oppressing them. Follow after the Lord instead of building your own kingdom, and maybe God will give grace. But as we're going to see next week, Nebuchadnezzar chooses the hard way. And a year later, judgment comes like a hammer in exactly the way that the Lord warned Nebuchadnezzar chose the hard way. What about you? What about me? Perhaps you're like Nebuchadnezzar this morning and you are far from God and fully aware of it. You pursue ease, comfort, prosperity as hard as you can with everything that you've got. You even try to be nice to people so that your conscience settles down there in the back of your head, doesn't yell at you quite as loud, keeps things on an even keel. My hope this morning is to disturb your calm. My hope this morning is that you will be rattled out of your ease and comfort. Because judgment is coming. God one day will call your account. 
you will stand before him. And today, grace is held out to you by a God who loves you, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and asks you, why will you die? Turn back. Turn back. Will you repent and turn to him? Will you embrace Christ by faith? And your ledger can be wiped out. The red can be gone because of what Jesus has accomplished. We'd love to talk to you more about that, to answer your questions, to discuss your doubts, and to hold out what it looks like to be saved by Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, but ease and prosperity have gotten you into a cycle where you're cold towards God. You're not in that habit of repentance, of growth, of sanctification. Maybe you're living too comfortably with sin. You're not glorifying God in the way that you should. Judgment is coming. That's my message for you this morning. Judgment is coming. Maybe it's a temporal affliction designed to rattle you out of your discomfort and get you right with God. Maybe it's ultimate judgment. If you continue down your broken path and betray through that broken path that doesn't change, that you never knew God to begin with. Don't bank your standing on a prayer you prayed 20 years ago. If you're cold and distant now, maybe God's going to bring something in your life to get your attention that you're not walking with him and your soul is in danger. Will you hear that warning of God's grace? Repent and return to the great lover of your soul. If you're repenting this morning for the millionth time, not just the first one, repent, turn to him. Maybe you're not really sure which of those two categories you fit in. Maybe you would say, you know, 20 years ago, I I thought I was following Jesus, but these days I'm not, and it's it's hard to tell if it was real or if it was all in my head. I don't don't know if I am or not. I don't know what category I fall into. Let's talk about that this week. Let's make some time. Let's grab coffee. Let's start a conversation about that. But I've got good news for you. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. Now, when I say that, I don't want to to trivialize that question. But let's say that you don't know the Lord, that, that what happened 20 years ago wasn't really genuine. You know what you need to do today? You need to repent. You need to break off from your sin. You need to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was real 20 years ago and you've just been in this cold cycle for a long time. Do you know what you need to do this morning? You need to repent. You need to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ to restore you and to sanctify you. Whichever road you're on, the answer is the same. Repent of your sin, break off your iniquity, and turn to Christ and ask him to help you to grow to look more like him and praise him for his glorious grace. Don't take Nebuchadnezzar's hard road. Don't wait for the slap upside the head to really realize the predicament that you're in, but realize that grace rattles you out of your ease and comfort. It brings with it a message of warning, It requires divine revelation, God speaking into your life through his word and his people to let you know what to do, and it always demands repentance. It calls you to respond, and it welcomes you into the family of the God who speaks it. Next week, we're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar, even though he takes the hard way, God's grace comes to him further, and it ultimately will bring him home into the family that he didn't even know he needed. But this morning, let's close in prayer and let's reflect, where are we at? How do we need to change in the way that we are messengers of grace? 
And what do we need to do this morning to respond to God's warnings and invitations of grace to our lives? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, to your faithfulness that is new with each day. We never have to go to sleep at night and wonder if you'll be faithful tomorrow. You are a constant. You are a rock. You are a refuge. And I pray that you will help us today and this week to take shelter under you. When storms of this life upset us, discomfort us, God, may we see them not as inconveniences to rail against, but as reminders from you that we are in need of you. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never repented and trusted in Christ for the first time, anyone listening to this message that is in that spot, God, that you would break them and change them, that they wouldn't require the hard road Nebuchadnezzar goes down to, but they would respond in faith. God, may you give grace by your spirit to make that happen. And God, for those who are listening, who say, Father, I'm following you, but I need help. I need grace. May you give it. May you help, them to, may you help us to turn from sin, to break away from patterns that are dishonoring to you and to trust in you as you make us more and more like Jesus. And God, may you make us better messengers, full of compassion and boldness to be like Daniel in communicating this gracious truth to others. And in all this, God, may you be glorified in us. May we be people who point through our lives, through our repentance, through our faith, through our words to Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask all of this. Amen.